the scene from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Will Smith learns that his dad has better things to do than spend time with him. And Will holds how that feels in for a minute. But eventually he shares how hurt he is with Uncle Phil. How come he don't want me? And the sad reality of our world is that everyone in here has also experienced rejection. It may have been a boyfriend or a girlfriend. We may have been rejected by a spouse. Maybe it was a college we really wanted to get, to, get into or a job that we really wanted. Maybe we've been abandoned by friends. Maybe we've been rejected by parents. Maybe we've even felt rejected by God. Rejection hurts. It's terrible. You feel abandoned. You feel alone. You feel unloved. And unfortunately, all of us have to go through this. But the good news, if there is good news about rejection, is that there is someone who does not reject us. And that's God. God will never walk out the door like Will Smith's dad did. You will never have to ask of God, how come he don't want me? Instead of rejecting us, God accepts us. And that is the message that Romans 11 brings us this morning. The news that even though God could reject us, he accepts us and loves us instead. Now, most of you know about Romans. Romans is a letter in the Bible written by this guy named Paul. Paul is an early follower of Jesus who goes throughout the Roman Empire sharing the news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And Paul wrote a lot of letters that are in the Bible, uh, and for the past year or so, Rooftop has been going through his letter to the church at Rome, his letter to the Romans. And here at Rooftop, we're in the middle of our series on Romans 9 through 11, called Anguish and Hope. And good news, everyone, today we start Romans chapter 11. So look with me at our passage for this morning, which is Romans 11, verses 1 through 10. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, 
and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, there, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now, like many passages in Romans, this one's a tiny bit tricky. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to de-trickify it. And we're going to do that by doing two different things. The first is we're going to look at this passage exegetically. That's your fancy word for today, exegesis. And exegesis just means looking carefully at a passage of Scripture so that you can understand what it's saying. So we're going to make sense of this passage by looking at what it said to Paul and what it means in Paul's context. And then we're also going to look at what this passage says to us today. That's the second thing. We're going to look at its application to our lives. So, let's begin making sense of Romans 11, 1 through 10 together. And as we do this, keep in mind the big idea that is going to come through here that God graciously accepts his people even when he could reject us. So to make sense of this passage, the first thing we need to do is understand where Paul is coming from. If you've been with us the past several weeks, you know that there's been a lot of talk in Romans about Israel and the Gentiles. Israel was God's chosen people. They were the people talked about in the Old Testament. They've been God's people for about 2,000 years before Paul even writes Romans. And at this time, Israel is in an interesting situation because although they are God's people, they have not accepted God's Messiah. They have not accepted Jesus. Now, on the other hand, we have the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are everyone else, everyone who's not Israel. And by the time that Paul writes this letter to the Romans, the Gentiles, or at least large chunks of the Gentiles, have been following Jesus for about 20 years or so. And so the church is wrestling with this, this issue. Why have God's chosen people not accepted Jesus, and why have the Gentiles come to faith? And so in Romans 9 through 11, Paul is wrestling with this question. Can the church trust God if God has rejected Israel? And to this point, Paul has argued quite well, yes, the church can trust God because God has not rejected Israel. If you were here last, last week, Pastor Matt talked about Romans chapter 10, and he explained how it wasn't God who rejected Israel, it was Israel who rejected God. Remember Romans 10, 21, where Paul wrote, Of Israel, God says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. 
In other words, Paul says you can't blame Israel, I'm sorry, you can't blame God for rejecting Israel because it's Israel who has rejected God. And it's in this context that Paul is writing Romans 11, the context of Israel's rejection of God. And so Paul asks in verse 1, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And Paul's answer to this question is, by no means. Now, in the Greek here, this is a really emphatic statement. Right? Paul is saying, for sure, no. Under no circumstances, no. Heck no, God has not rejected his people. God has been faithful to Israel. And so for Paul, the message here is that we can trust God because he has accepted Israel even though they have rejected him. And so that's verse 1 of our passage. And then for the rest of the passage, Paul makes, uh, gives three reasons why he knows God hasn't given up on Israel. And the first reason is an argument from Paul himself. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Paul says, Hey guys, don't forget about me. I'm an Israelite. God cannot possibly have rejected Israel if I belong to Israel and I also belong to God. Paul himself shows that God has not rejected Israel. Second, there's an argument from the remnant. Now, as my seamstress wife makes very clear, a remnant is something that you buy at Joanne Fabrics. But a remnant, more broadly speaking, is a leftover piece of something that was much larger. Right? It's a part of a whole. And in verses 2 through 6, Paul is recounting the story of the prophet Elijah from 1 Kings 19, where Elijah thought that everyone who was faithful to God had been killed, and he was the only remnant. He was the only one remaining who was truly faithful to God. And in these verses, Paul reminds his readers that in the past, when things have been bad, God has always preserved a remnant from his people. He did so in Elijah's time, and he will do so now as well. And it's with this remnant, Paul says, that God has made his continued acceptance of his people most clear. And third, Paul makes the argument from Scripture, from what the Old Testament has to say about Israel's rejection of God. In verses 7 through 10, Paul quotes three Old Testament passages about how Israel rejected God for a time. Now, Paul is going to talk a whole lot more about this in the rest of chapter 11, so we're not really going to dig into this today. But the gist of what he is saying is that the prophets in the Old Testament have consistently foretold that Israel would do what Israel is doing, that they would reject God, but that God would remain faithful to them. And so for these three reasons, Paul says, no, God has not rejected Israel. Yes, they've turned their backs on him, but God 
hasn't turned his back on Israel. He didn't abandon them. He didn't leave them behind. He was faithful despite their faithlessness. And so for the original audience of Romans, these verses are communicating that God is still trustworthy because he hasn't given up on Israel. Now, for those of us in this room who don't belong to ancient Israel, that looks like most of you, yes, all right, um, what do these verses mean? The message from Romans 11, 1 through 10 for us is that God has not rejected us either. And in fact, not only has God not rejected us, he's actually accepted us. He's welcomed us. Even when we feel rejected, God says that he remains faithful to his people. God doesn't give up on us when we are afraid. God doesn't give up on us when we, like Israel, fail to do something. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this acceptance from God because um, this is really important. It's great that God accepts us. That's good news. But that's not the whole story. It's kind of like when you get a new job. You find the job you want. You're looking for it. You apply. You interview. Through the process, you're like, yes, this is the job I want. This is what God has made me to do. You start at that job. And on the first day, your buddy pulls you over, and he's like, hey, have you heard about the perks that this job gives you? Have you heard about the parking space that you get? Or have you heard about the extra holiday we get this year? Have you heard about how you don't have to wear a suit and tie when you're preaching on Sunday? Have you heard about these perks? As Christians, God's acceptance of us is good news, but there's more. God saves you from your sins and saves you from hell, but that's not the whole story. There are all sorts of other things that God does. And throughout Scripture, these things are talked about, but Paul talks about two of these perks of being a Christian here. And he talks about what it means that God preserves us and, God, and what it means that God forgives us. And we're going to talk about these two things for the rest of our time this morning. While I was an undergraduate, I was privileged to study abroad for a term at the University of Oxford in England. It was a great opportunity. You get to go, you get to learn with world-class scholars, you get to study in these really cool-looking old buildings. It's a great experience. And while I was there, I worked really hard on the weekdays to get all my schoolwork done so that on the weekends I could take advantage of the other good part of being in Europe, and that is all the things that there are to see, all the places to visit, all the things to do. And so one weekend, I decided that I would go to Cardiff, Wales. Now, Cardiff is fairly close to Oxford, but to get there, you have to take a train. And in England, trains are very popular. There are lots of people who ride trains. It's very busy. Um, and I don't know if you can tell on this map, but you actually have to transfer a couple of different trains to get from point A to point B. Uh, and so I got up that morning, got on the train, jostling around with people in the train stations, and I show up in Cardiff. And I reach for my wallet, and it's not there. 
or there, or there, or anywhere else I look. Someone stole my wallet while I was on the train. But they didn't just steal my wallet. They stole my ID. They stole the only credit card I had. They stole all the cash that I had. While I was alone, on a trip, in a foreign country, by myself, early in the morning. Now, fortunately, I had put my train tickets in my front pocket, so I was able to get back to Oxford, otherwise I'd probably still be in Cardiff. <laughs> but I got back on that train, and I remember just sitting there, head leaned up against the window, watching the countryside go by, just feeling so small, feeling so alone, so dejected and anxious. God, what is going on? God, where are you? God, why is this happening to me? God, am I going to starve because I don't have food and I don't have money to buy anymore? God, where are you? And I'd like to think that in some small way, what I experienced that day on that train parallels what the prophet Elijah was feeling in our passage for today. God, where are you? God, bad things are happening. God, I feel alone. God, where, where are you to help me? And it's in the midst of these moments, when we're feeling alone, when we're feeling rejected, when we're feeling abandoned, that God can step in and transcend our fear. It's in these moments when God, instead of leaving us alone or rejecting us, it's in these moments that God preserves his people. He sticks with us and he keeps us safe. And with Elijah, God's message, message of preservation takes an audible form. Look at verse 4, right? But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, you feel alone, but you're not alone. There are other people who have resisted idolatry. Even if it feels like I've left you, Elijah, you're okay. Now, God's preservation takes different forms. Elijah got a seemingly audible message from God here. Okay? I don't know about you, I've never heard an audible message from God. Right? But I have experienced God's preservation in other ways. For example, when I was feeling hopeless on the train in Wales, several things happened. First, the Holy Spirit brought me comfort. I cried out to God. I asked him, God, what is going on? And the Holy Spirit brought to mind God's promises that he would never leave me or forsake me, that he would work all things out, that he would guide my path. 
When we feel rejected and alone, that's the best thing we can do. Cry out to God and wait for him to answer. The second way that God helped preserve me in this situation was through my family. Now, there's a pretty sizable time difference between the United Kingdom and the United States. Um, and as you might imagine, as soon as I found out my wallet was stolen, I uh, started calling and texting my parents. And so they woke up to like 30 phone calls from me, right? But eventually they woke up and they said, oh no, we should call Jake. And then they canceled my credit card and then they called me, right? And my parents were thousands of miles away. There wasn't anything they could actually really do for me in that moment. But what they could do is they could talk to me. They could say, Jacob, we love you. Jacob, we're going to do everything we can to make sure you're okay. And even though functionally nothing about my situation changed, that helped. Because in that moment, by talking to my parents, I knew I wasn't alone. And the third thing that God used to help preserve me in this situation was my friends. I got back to Oxford. My friends rallied around me. They said, Jacob, here's some money so you don't starve before your new credit card shows up. They let me talk to them about what had happened. And when things were back to normal, they celebrated with me. The community that I was in was a tangible way that God showed me his love and preservation. Now, Knowing that God preserves his people is, good, is a good thing to know. But it's a little abstract. It's up in your head. It's head knowledge. God preserves his people. The problem with people is that when we only have things up in our head, we do a really bad job of actually living like those things are true. Human beings need to turn head knowledge into hand knowledge. They need to live out something tangible in order to know that it's really true. And so how do we make tangible the idea that God preserves us? My suggestion for you this morning is that you learn three lessons from my wailing in Wales. <clears throat> the first is to cry out to God. Pray. Bring your feelings, bring your fears, bring your failures to God. He hears and he will answer. Second, after you've cried out to God, talk with someone. Talk to someone you trust. Talk to someone who's a good listener. Talk to someone who's going to be able to encourage you through whatever situation you're going through. And then rely on your community. You don't have to be alone. If you're here this morning, whether it's your first time at Rooftop or your 150th time, if you're here this morning, it means you're surrounded by a community of people who love you. Rely on them. Ask them for help. God accepts us. But not only does he accept us, he works to preserve us in times of trouble. And it's through crying out, it's through talking to people, it's through being in community. These are the ways that God act, 
acts to preserve us and to tangibly show his acceptance in our lives. Now, not only does God preserve us, he also forgives us. Remember, Israel in Romans 11 has actually done something wrong. They've been disobedient and they've been obstinate. They're deserving of rejection. They've done messed up. And this is true of us too. Each of us has sinned. Each of us has screwed up. We haven't done the good things that we've known we ought to do. But instead of rejecting us, God accepts us and forgives us. Don't miss this message in verses 5 and 6, which say, There is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What Paul is saying is that God's acceptance of us doesn't depend on us. God's acceptance of us doesn't depend on us. It depends on the work of Jesus on the cross. And that is grace. And that is the message that Paul has for us today. While we were still worthy of rejection, Christ died to accept and forgive us. And if you've been accepted by God, if you're that remnant talked about in verse 5, you know it wasn't something that you did. The only reason you belong is because God forgave your disobedience and your obstinance. One of my favorite stories of forgiveness is the story of Nate Saint, as told in the movie End of the Spear. Uh, if you're not familiar, in uh, the mid-1950s, a Christian missionary named Nate Saint uh, took a group of his friends to go share the gospel of Jesus to a group of, um, Alka, of, a group of the Alka tribe in Ecuador. And at this point in time, the Alka were less than friendly. They tended to greet visitors with some sort of violence. Uh, but Nate and his friends said, no, they need to know that Jesus loves them too. And so in early 1956, uh, Nate Saint and his missionary companions made contact with this tribe, and less than a week later, they were all, Nate and his missionary friends were all speared to death. And in most stories, that's where the story ends, but not in this story. Because a short time later, Rachel Saint, Nate's sister, went to go live among the Alka. And a few years later, Steve Saint, Nate's son, joined her. And they went and shared the good news of God's love and forgiveness with the people who killed their loved one. And that, my friends, is the power of the gospel. That is the transforming influence when God's acceptance and forgiveness gets a hold of your life. You're willing to go accept and forgive the people who've killed your family. And the truth is that God has also done this. He has also accepted and forgiven us when we have killed his family. Earlier in Romans, Paul has talked about how 
while we were still sinners, while we were still rejecting God, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us and to forgive us. And the lesson for us today is to go and do likewise. Like Rachel and Steve Saint, who shared God's acceptance and forgiveness with people who killed their family, we are called to radically live out God's forgiveness in our lives. So what does living like someone accepted and forgiven by God look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. I have two suggestions for you. First, it means seriously forgiving other people. Now, forgiveness isn't just acting like something didn't happen. And true forgiveness isn't just putting yourself into a dangerous situation willy-nilly. But it does mean taking seriously God's example of forgiving people who have done terrible things. Who do you need to forgive today? Who have you rejected for good or bad reasons that you need to extend God's forgiveness to? And second, living as someone forgiven by God means living humbly. It means recognizing that you're part of that remnant, that it's not you who is doing all the good things in your life. You have received God's acceptance and forgiveness, and that is why you are forgiven. And then it means living humbly in light of that truth. At Rooftop, we talk about this humility by saying we take God seriously, but not ourselves. And one thing that that means is we recognize that we're sinners and that we need God's grace every day. And because we recognize we need God's grace, we are free to give God's grace as well. Instead of rejecting us, God accepted and forgave us, and we should respond in like manner. In Romans 11, Paul proclaims good news that God graciously accepts you. Even when Israel was disobedient, God accepted them. When we feel alone or afraid or rejected, God doesn't leave us behind. God is faithful, even when it doesn't seem like it, even when it doesn't feel like it, even when we don't deserve it. God doesn't forsake us. No matter how rejected or abandoned you feel by God this morning, I am standing here to tell you that he loves you and he accepts you. He wants to preserve and forgive you. All that you have to do is ask. How will you respond to God's gift of acceptance this morning? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you never abandon or reject us. Thank you for your preservation and forgiveness. Lord, many of us have experienced heart-wrenching, tear-inducing, painful rejection 
in our lives. Many of us have felt abandoned and hopeless. Strengthen and preserve us. Give us the words to cry out to you with. Make us the family and friends who can rally around those who have been rejected. May we be the hands and feet of your love and acceptance here at Rooftop and here in St. Louis. May we go out from this place eager to follow your example, to love and forgive others as you have loved and forgiven us. And we pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.